he said the most important use of his money right at the beginning was to communicate to the employees how important they were to him. And this was a very concrete way of doing it. And he said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And when he put money into the areas that the public would never see, but the employees would, that was just a solid demonstration of his belief in them and his caring about them. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an incredible guest lined up for you today. Today's guest is one of the most insightful, powerful people in the world when it comes to helping you win and succeed and to have the mindset of a champion. This lady has written a book with a previous guest on the show, my dear friend, Mark Victor Hansen. And the name of the book is How to Be Up in Down Times. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary Mitzi Perdue. Welcome to the show, Mitzi. Woohoo, boy, do I ever love that introduction. Thank you so much. <laughs> You're so welcome. My pleasure. Mitzi, it's a real honor to have you on the show today. Thank you for joining us. Oh, I've been looking forward to this so much. And, and again, I'm honored. I, I look at your guest list and boy, Nikki, you're something. Thank you. Thank you. So kind of you to say. So, Mitzi, you and I have gotten to know each other a little bit. And I know we're going to get to know each other a lot more over the, the months and years to come because we, we think alike and, and we share a lot of common values. Let me tell you a little bit about my audience and the reason they listen to the show. My audience is composed of men and women who I believe are society's greatest heroes. They are the entrepreneurs. They are the people who have a vision, a dream to make their lives better, their family lives better, but frankly, to make the world a better place. And they go up against naysayers every day. And they listen to the show, one, to fortify them against a world full of naysayers, Two, to give them great tips and strategies on how they can succeed in living life as the best version of themselves and making their business the best version that it can be. And lastly, because they want to be a part of a movement, a global movement of people who are champions of freedom and free enterprise. But before they can open their hearts to you and listen to you with everything they've got, they need to get to know you. They need to fall in love with you and your story. So tell us your backstory. How'd you get to be the great Mitzi Perdue? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And I'm already in love with them because I do see them as the heroes. I mean, if you're an entrepreneur, you're providing jobs, you're pro and you're, you don't get to be a success unless you meet people's needs and make life better. So I, I think they're the most productive, admirable people on the planet. But I will tell you that I come by this view, I think I'm going to say honest, I come by it honest, because my late father, his name was Ernest Henderson, and he was the co-founder along with my uncle, and he was also the president of, ta-da, the Sheraton Hotel chain. 
Wow. He, he founded it in the 1930s at a time when everybody was running away from real estate. He had the courage and the vision to think, you know, times are bad now, but they're going to change. And I will rush in to real estate and hotels while everybody else is running away from it. And it made him a fortune. By the end of his days, he employed 20,000 people and the family owned 400 pretty major hotels. Wow. All right, that's, that's, that's how I grew up. I, I got to see my father in action. And I was, you know, as a little girl, I was just fascinated by how he did it. So I was forever asking him, you know, how did you do it? And I'll share some of that with, with our audience today. And hopefully I'll be able to give some, some tips that are useful to them today. And that's half of my answer. Can I monologue and tell the rest of my answer? Uh, by all means, please. I'm waiting with bated breath. Ah, uh, thank you. Because it's kind of rude for a guest to monologue, but I, this will be the last time I completely monologue at you. <laughs> but the, the second half of my story is I married another titan of industry. Frank Perdue, like my father, started with no employees. And at the time of his death, Frank Perdue, the chicken guy, employed 20,000 people. Wow. And you know, by the time I married Frank, of course, I'm a grown-up. And I'm a writer by that time. And I would take notes almost every day of why he was doing what he was doing. And I'd ask him, I'd pester him. And... And I learned a lot about what it takes to be an extraordinarily successful person. And I will give you the bottom line right now, even before you ask, which is both men said it was the people at every level that made their companies a success. Mm. And now I'll wind down. So, Mitzi, first of all, they listen to this show because they want to hear more from you than me. They get to hear me every week. They need to hear from you a lot more than they hear from me. But I love that aspect of your story because it reminds me of something I learned from Tony Robbins when I was attending one of his events and that was about the law of proximity. Tony Robbins said that the law of proximity means that who you get to hang around matters a great deal. If you want to be someone who is successful, take a look at the five, 10 people that you spend most of your time with and you'll probably have a pretty clear understanding of how far you're going to go in life. And you had the good fortune to uh, be the daughter of one of the most successful entrepreneurs in uh, American capitalist history. And you married another one of the most successful entrepreneurs in American capitalist history. So you got to take advantage of the law of proximity in a very powerful way. I wonder what your thoughts are on that if, and if maybe you could expand on that for the audience. Oh, I'd love to. No, I, I totally believe in the law of proximity. And oh. Uh, you know, the good fortune I had of being associated with two such men, I mean, it, it boggles my mind. I realize that, you know, it's that I, w I won the lottery and the jackpot and everything else. But I think it's kind of fortunate that I grew up to be a writer, which I am, because that meant that I was recording at, at a closer vantage point than how about almost anybody. And I mentioned earlier that I was forever asking them how they did it. Both men had mind-boggling human relations skills. They, they knew how to inspire people to stay with them for life and to make a habit of regularly going the extra mile. And I also have a degree in management. So I'm marrying my interest in 
in success, which I got to witness close up and personal, with the management skills that it took to do that. And one of the things that like, I learned about my father, and I think this is going to be surprising to everybody, but Ernest Henderson, my father, co-founder and president of the Sheraton Hotel chain, he was in the hospitality industry. And yet, when he was 26 years old, I think any objective person would have predicted that that was the least likely career path for him in, in life. He was, how about, he was shy, he was awkward, and he even went to a career guidance counselor. The man's name was Johnson O'Connor, and I think we're talking 1923, so we're talking a long time ago. He went to Johnson O'Connor, the career guidance counselor, to find out why he just wasn't getting anywhere in life. Uh, you know, his own mother told my mother, don't marry Ernest, he can never stick with anything, you'll end up poor. Uh, now, can you imagine that this person would be a business success in the hospitality industry? Wow. And, <laughs> well, let me tell you what happened. And again, I hope what I'm about to share with everybody is useful because this is a case of somebody overcoming, how about, well, e extraordinary obstacles because Johnson O'Connor, the career guidance counselor, told my father at the end of eight hours of testing, and I guess they were more blunt back then than they would be today, but he told my father, you have the worst human relations skills I've ever come across. Oh, my God. He said, you know, I could, in, from the light of today, I could almost guess that maybe father had Asperger's and just didn't understand how to relate to people. Well, Johnson O'Connor told my father, you know, you're a bright enough fellow, you know, you can make a living, but choose something where you don't have to interact with people. And I recommend uh, that you become a scientist because, you know, you're, you're good at math and you, you've, you've got a clear logical mind and you're smart enough. Become a scientist, but work in a laboratory where you don't have to interact with anybody and, and you know, do your science stuff and you'll, you'll earn a living. Well, my father took this as a challenge. He, he reasoned, and he told me this, he said that he sort of took stock of things and what does it take to be a success in life? And you know, through a lot of, of thinking and soul searching, he narrowed it down to, if you really want to be a success in life, you have to understand people. You have to get along with people. And as far as I can tell, he spent the rest of his life focusing on studying of what makes people tick, how do you get along with people, how do you motivate them. And he took courses in psychology. He took the Dale Carnegie course, and he told me that he read Dale Carnegie's book once every 10 years. He, he took salesmanship courses. He took public speaking courses. He did every possible thing that he could to learn how to overcome his deficit. And again, he was doing this for the purpose of what he figured out in life was that you need to get along with people. Cool? It's super cool. And it's very, very true. You know, um, there's a, a podcaster out there who's very popular. His name's Andy Frisella. And he has a, a podcast called Real AF. So um, it, it's... Uh, 
it, it's a bit of a salty podcast and he, and he uses a lot of adult language on it, but it's very popular. And in one of the episodes, he mentioned that the two skills that you need to become successful in life more than any other are salesmanship and leadership. And both of those skills involve learning how to be good with people. So father was right. Well, allow me to to give you an example of, of how I witnessed of how, how it played out, his his learning about human nature, because I think, you know, he's a man who turned his greatest deficit into his greatest asset. Uh, I mean, I think he became better at human relations than almost, well, certainly than most people. And the way that he that he was able to make a success in the hospitality industry was because he had put so much study into what motivates people, what people want, what makes them tick, you know, what, what what's rewarding to them, what's discouraging to them. I think that the fact that he was bad at it to begin with and that he made a study of it for the rest of his life was the reason that he made Sheraton a success. But uh, allow me to to give a Mitzi's high view of, of how he did it. Absolutely. Go for it. I'm waiting with bated breath. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. He told me that whenever he'd take over a hotel, and remember, he started at the height of the Great Depression. We're talking 1922, I'm sorry, 1932, 1933. That's when he began buying hotels. And as I mentioned earlier, this is a time when when nobody was buying hotels because it was viewed as a fast one-way ticket to bankruptcy. Nobody could make any money out of a hotel. You'd put money into it and you'd lose it. So how did Father turn things around? Well, he told me that whenever he'd buy a hotel, he'd invite all the employees into the hotel's ballroom. And you know, there might be 400 employees, there might be 800 employees. It takes a lot of people to run a fairly large hotel. And he said that he knew that the people that he was about to address, you know, when he took the stage and looked out over an audience of, let's say, 400 people, he knew that every one of them was just totally demoralized. Uh, when a hotel is on the verge of bankruptcy, which were the hotels that, you know, that would come his way, the employees certainly knew it, and they also knew that when a new owner takes over, they almost certainly will clean out the dead wood. They'll, they'll get rid of people. And so Father knew that every single, well, I suppose every person in his audience was worried, is today the day I get fired? Is today the day I'm on the breadline? Is today the day I have to come home to my spouse and say, I'm not sure how I'm going to put food on the table? So father, who developed this empathy because of his study of, of human nature, he knew that's what was on the minds of the people in his audience. And he also knew they were probably not going to really hear a word he said because they were so preoccupied with today's the day I'm going to get fired. So knowing that, father looked out over his audience and he told them, I want every one of you to keep your job and I want you to keep it because I know that you know your job better than anybody else on the planet. And my job is to give you the resources and the encouragement to show the world just how good you are. And you're going to see what will happen in just a few months. This hotel's going to turn around 
and it's going to be the most successful hotel in the city. It's going to be financially stable, which ensures your jobs are going to be secure, but it's also going to be popular because it's going to be the best served, the best run hotel in the city. And we together as a team, we're going to show the world that no matter how bad it is in the economy right now, that we can turn things around and we're going to be an example to the rest of the city. We're going to be a shining, beautiful example that things can turn around, even in today's environment. Well, imagine what, what, what the people, you know, they, they've walked in thinking, this is the end of the world, I'm going to lose my job. And they walk out saying, hey, here's somebody who believes in me and knows that I know my job better than anybody else in the world and who wants me to succeed. You know, imagine what that meant to the employees. You know, at a time like the Great Depression where uh, everybody was living in a state of fear, kind of like now in the pandemic, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. It, it, it must have been uh, a godsend to them to, to hear a, a message of hope like that. Well, that's part one of the story. There's three parts to the story. Keep going. <laughs> okay. The second part is, and you know, this is daddy telling me, he said that the words that he had used were encouraging and that they, they meant a lot to the people, but they weren't enough. He said the second thing that he would do whenever he'd take over a hotel is a hotel that you know, has been on the edge of bankruptcy, you have to put a lot of money into it to refurbish it. You know, the carpets are probably stained, the curtains frayed. Um, you know, it just, you have to, you have to refurbish it if it's, if it's gone to seed. So he said he knew that any hotel he took over, he would have to spend money upgrading it, giving it a refresh. But he, he told me that he never put money at the beginning into the areas that the paying public would see. No, he'd put it into the areas that only the employees would see, like the employee dining room, the employee lockers, the employee showers, the elevators. He would, he would spruce up the, the areas that the public would never see and he'd do that first. So I, as, as a kid, asked him, yeah, but why would you do that? Wouldn't you want to put money first into the areas where you could sort of get your money back by, by impressing the traveling public? And he said, no. He said the most important use of his money right at the beginning was to communicate to the employees how important they were to him. And this was a very concrete way of doing it. And he said, people have a compulsion to live up to or down to your expectations. And when he put money into the areas that the public would never see, but the employees would, that was just a solid demonstration of his belief in them and his caring about them. Wow. Wow, he, was, he was the original delivering happiness guy. I think so. And, and I don't think he would have known to do this if he hadn't spent the previous 10 years studying human nature and, and what makes people tick and, and what motivates them. And I, I mentioned there are three parts to the story. The third part to the story is, you know, again, I'm, I'm, I'm a kid and I'm asking him 
you know, questions. And one of the questions I asked him was, why did you just give it away to the employees that first day saying everybody keeps your job? Wouldn't you want to like make them earn it or maybe motivate them by thinking, um, hey, I've got my job for the moment, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've got to earn it in some way. And his answer was that in his world, there were three ways of getting people to do what you want. And I suppose there are a hundred or a million ways, but in his world, there were three ways. And he said, two of them are rotten and one of them's really pretty good. And he said, the first way of getting people to do what you want is, well, he told me, I could have stood up there in front of them and said to every one of them, shape up or you're fired. And he said, yeah, you could probably get people to do some degree of shaping up. Um, you know, that is motivational, but he says, it's, he told me that that was intimidation. And intimidation, you can get people to do what you want, but they're going to do it grudgingly. Uh, they're going to do the least they can get by with. And so in his world, intimidation was a really bad way of getting people to do what he wanted. Okay, number two in his world was bribery. He said he could have stood up in front of them and said, hey guys, do a really good job and there's a raise in it for you or do a really good job and there's a bonus in it for you. But he said bribery, you know, it's not as bad as intimidation or, but the, the, the defects of bribery they're numerous, but among them, people don't stay bribed. You have to keep upping the ante. And then on top of that, with bribery, they'll work for the bribe rather than for the overall good of, of the whole team. And so he, he felt that bribery, just intimidation and bribery, they're tools which he preferred not to use and in general didn't. So I asked him, what's the third? And he said, inspiration. He said the people who were in his audience that first day, you know, supposing that you're a maid and your job is to make the beds or you're a bartender and your, bar, your job is to pour drinks. He didn't want them thinking just my job is making beds, pouring drinks. No, I'm part of a team that's going to make this the best hotel in the city and we're going to be we're going to be an example for everybody else that things can turn around. And he said, when people are, are thinking, well, here's how he formulated it. He said, a leader's job is to give people a better vision of themselves. And he wanted people to think, yeah, we're part of a team that together is building something fabulous. And that's the three parts to my story of, of how Father got people to stay with him for life and to make a habit of going the extra mile. That's a fantastic story, Mitzi. Uh, I got to tell you, um, one of the uh, modern uh, leaders that has been a guru for delivering happiness to employees has been uh, the late Tony Shea from Zappos, which is a shoe, oh, well, yes. shoe company uh, was what he built. Listen, it was great. I'm a woman. I know about Zappos. You know about Zappos. Okay, fantastic. So um, it, it's so sad that he just passed away. But uh, he, he had a philosophy that I think he must have uh, – 
imbibed from your father because it, it, it's incredible. Your your father did this ninety years ago, and he, and it took someone like Tony Shea to go, hey, you know what? The way most of the other folks are doing it isn't right. This is how we should do it. So kudos, kudos, and and, and you saw this firsthand by being his daughter. Yeah, and do you know what he had that philosophy? You know, Sheraton. I think it would have grown and it would have been successful and it would have been profitable just because the employees were were part of a team that believed in each other and believed in him and he believed in them. But that's not the end of it. Uh, he was, I think he was extraordinarily good as a businessman negotiator. And here, here's another, I, I call these timeless secrets of success because I think they work at any time and at any size business. Uh, he told me that one of the reasons for Sheraton's success, and I mentioned that you know it grew to 400 hotels at the time of his death in 1967. Well, he said that when he was negotiating, say to buy a hotel, he said he very deliberately wanted a reputation for generosity. He didn't want to be known as a shark. And I'm, I'm actually using words that, that he used. Uh, he didn't want to be known as a shark. He always wanted to leave something on the table. And to him, it wasn't a good deal unless both sides were happy with it. And he said on, on, on every deal, he could have made more. He could have, he could have been a tougher negotiator. He could have been a less understanding negotiator. So doesn't that sound like a, a, a bad strategy? I mean, it's not a payoff if you're not making the, the most you can. Well, uh, the answer to my rhetorical question is, no, it was a great strategy because he told me on every single deal, he wasn't making the max, but the payoff was he would get he would get first chance when an attractive property came up for sale, it would be offered to him first. And the reason why is, I'm going to take a hypothetical answer, but it's, it's, it's based on reality. Imagine that uh, you're the widow of somebody who owns maybe four or five hotels. Uh, the person's died, you're in your late 70s or 80s, and as, as a widow, you don't want to go run it, so you sell it. You, you tell your, off, your uh, lawyer, put this in the market, get the best deal for me that you can. Now, the lawyer, assuming we have an honest lawyer who's representing the widow's best interests, is going to go straight to Ernest Henderson because he has a reputation of treating you most fairly and understanding your needs as well as his, and he's not going to fight over the last penny. And so... The strategy of being a generous negotiator, at least if you're in business for the long term, is you get the best offers first. Yeah, that makes that makes perfect sense. And not only that, um, it means that, as you said, you get the best offers first. But it also means that you know universally that your reputation uh, is of somebody who's fair, and more and more people want to do business with you. Yeah. I mean, who is it who says that people do business with people they know and like? And yeah, so he, he got known and he got liked. And, and part of his secret for getting liked, again, goes back to the odd thing that at age 26, he had the worst human relations skills <laughs> uh, <laughs> <Known the man. laughs> a guidance counselor had ever come across. Uh, 
And again, he made his, his biggest deficit, his greatest asset, because when you study a subject, because it doesn't come natural, uh, at least in his case, he got better at it than the people for whom human relations skills came natural. Yeah, yeah, that's fantastic. Wow, that's, that's, that's quite the story. Okay, so your father taught you some incredible lessons. Now, let's hear about some of the lessons you learned from your, from your husband. Well, Frank Perdue's story is so like my father's in that both men attributed their entire success to the people who worked with them. Uh, but they also had, uh, both people had just breathtaking human relations skills. I want to share a story with, with Frank that when, when we first got married, uh, and when we first got married, our, our, we had a very rapid courtship because Frank told me after we met that he was busy running his company and that we couldn't, it, it just wouldn't be a normal courtship <laughs> because we, we were just going to cut to the chase. And when, when we married, we endowed each other in person six weeks and three days. Wow. And it was a blissful 17 years together. I mean, it was, it was, it was the happiest time of my life because I, I got to live with a genius who also had amazing human relations skills. Well, a story from when we first got married. You remember, we had known each we had known each other for half a year by phone calls because I lived in California, he lived in Maryland, uh, and so we actually did know each other pretty well because when you talk for an hour or two every night, uh, you get to know each other pretty well. But nevertheless, uh, we've just returned from our honeymoon, and it's late. It's late summer, and we're visiting friends in Watch Hill, Rhode Island, and we're walking on the beach. And oh, it, it was romantic, you know, a, a cool sort of fall, late summer day, carrying our sandals, walking barefoot on the beach. And I look up to him. He was about six inches taller than me. I look up to him and I say, Frank, I think we should entertain every single person who works in the company. And, you know, this takes him aback. And he says, but but we employ 16,000 people today. That's that's not practical. That's not possible. And I, I pretended that I hadn't processed that he was saying no. And I said, let's have them 100 at a time. You know, the living room can fit that if we have a buffet. And he said, no, 100 at a time, that's, that's way too many. And I say, I bet we could start it in six weeks. And he said, no, 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 that's, that's way too soon. And we keep going round and round with my planning <laughs> these parties and him saying no. But gradually, as we kept talking about it, I noticed that it was sort of changing from, you know, what planet did you set down from <laughs> to maybe there's something to this. And finally, he looked at me while we stopped walking and he's facing me and he's, you know, he, he pounds his fist in his palm and he says, you know, I like it. And here's what made him change from, you know, that's the weirdest idea I've ever heard to, hey, I like it. Uh, he was always on the lookout, like my father was, for ways of making employees feel important. And by the way, in Purdue speak, it's associates. So he was always <laughs> on the lookout for ways of making associates feel important. And he had initially been kind of resisting because at heart, Frank Purdue, the marketing icon, 
And for those who aren't familiar with the name, in the 1980s and 1990s, uh, he was known as the marketing guru of the world. I mean, he was known in in Paris, in Moscow, would even be in China and people would know his marketing skills. Okay, so the marketing guru of the world was in fact a shy man. And the idea of having you know, hundreds of people in his home, you know, it was just way, 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 way outside his comfort zone. But he was willing to overcome his shyness and the comfort zone thing because it was a way of communicating to employees that they were important. And six weeks later, we did begin something that ah, it lasted for the next 17 years until he was too ill, you know, at 85, he, he had Parkinson's. He was, until he was medically unable to do it, roughly three times a month, we would have groups, a hundred at a time, for dinner in our home, and it would be a buffet dinner. And Frank, you know, the person who signs the checks of these people, Frank would stand behind the buffet people, the buffet table, and wait on his employees. Isn't that cool? That's super cool. Are you kidding me? Three times a month, 100 people yeah. at a time? Yeah, I don't know actually, if I could I, handle it. <laughs> well, we wouldn't and be I doing- I love people. <laughs> oh, I, and I haven't grown up in the hospitality. I thought, this is the coolest thing in the world. I get to entertain to my heart's content and somebody else is paying for it. That's awesome. <laughs> but, you know, since growing up in the hospitality industry, you know, I sort of had the idea that hospitality solves everything. <laughs> so that, that, was, that was the lens through which I was viewing it. But for Frank, it turned out to be just an amazing thing because that was a way for him to interact, you know, on, on a pretty close basis with with everybody in the company. It might be the truckers, it might be the sanitation people, it might be the auditors, the accountants, the lawyers, the veterinarians, everybody. And you know, he'd talk with every single person. And one of one of the great things about Frank, and the, you know, here's a tip that I would recommend to absolutely everybody. You know, I watch him in action and. I'm describing the parties, but it was in every single thing that he did. Frank Perdue would listen 90% of the time and talk 10% of the time. And you know, he's the alpha male. He's, he's the big boss. He's the person whose name is on, on the associate's check. But he's still listening just with total attention. And I, I used to... I used to call it, you know, as I'd watch him, that it was his, you're the most important person in my world look. And it was genuine. I mean, he really was interested in people. And so when he was talking with you, boy, you probably felt 10 feet tall because here's somebody, just somebody important who's really paying attention to you. Well, so yeah, that part was good for him to have in a social environment to interact with people who worked with him. And by the way, I said worked with him, not worked for him, because his attitude was he worked, they worked with him. Well, at the end of these evenings, he'd give his, yeah, the, the people, it's, it's in our living room, and he's standing up there addressing all of them, and he'd, he, he gives them a rundown on what was going on in the company, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly, you know, maybe 
maybe we had lost a contract or maybe we'd gained a contract or just, or maybe we'd had a breakthrough in breeding or who knows what, but he would give them the most current information of what was going on in the company. And I think information makes people feel engaged and, and part of the company. And then uh, he'd, he'd answer questions and that was just incredibly cool because people do have questions and for them to get to, to ask you know, the head of the whole company what's going on, I mean, that had to be so meaningful to them. And then at the very end of the evening, uh, you know, he'd say it in different words each time, but it would all boil down to as, as he was sort of closing out the evening, he'd look out over his audience and he'd say, again, in different words each time, but he'd say, I know the company wouldn't be what it is today without you. Thank you. Wow. And I've been to I've been to funerals where the next of kin would tell me that the most exciting and moving and meaningful thing in the deceased's life was having dinner at the home of the big boss. Wow. That blows me away, you know, and it it just reminds me that every human being, me, you, everybody, wants to feel like they matter, like they're somebody. Uh, and the fact that oh, what they do is recognized and is important in someone else's eyes just makes it all worthwhile to them. Well, there's, there's a quote that, that I think guided Frank's life. And it's a quote from, let's see if I can reconstruct it off the top of my head. I can. Uh, it was from Henry from William James, who was a psychiatrist from the 1900s. And here's the quote that, that Frank lived out. The quote is, oh, and I invite everybody to remember this because I think it's the secret to the universe. The quote is, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. Is that not fabulous? It is totally the, fabulous. Yeah, the deepest principle of human nature is the craving for appreciation. And, and Frank knew how to deliver it. In fact, one of the things that impressed me, I mean, I, I, I felt like, uh, like almost a Frank groupie because I admired my husband so much, except I was married to him. That's incredible. Um, but I got, I got to tag along with him when we'd have factory visits. And... Something that I would notice, you know, with kind of jaw-dropping amazement was the number of names that Frank Purdue knew. You know, towards the end of his life, he was employing 20,000 people. The number of names he knew, it had to be in the many, many, many thousands because would walk through a line. Of, uh, you, you've seen assembly lines. Well, in, in the chicken uh, processing plant, it's a little like an assembly line. And the number of names that he knew of people working on the line and had introduced me to them. He'd say, Mitzi, I'd like you to meet Maisie. Uh, Maisie has, has been with us for 32 years and her son just got into college. Or, or meet Antonio. Uh, Antonio hasn't had a sick day in, in, in 20 years. Or I mean, he'd, just, he'd not just know the name, he'd know something about them. And I... I I can imagine that the owner of a company, it would be just so easy, 
you know, first of all, not to go there at all, but if they do go there, to sort of walk through with your nose in the air, not acknowledging the individual people on the line. Uh, not Frank. Frank treated them, as far as I can tell, and I think I'd go to a hill and die on this issue. I'm so, I'm so convinced that I'm right. Yes. I th- Frank's, Frank's attitude towards the people he worked with wasn't, I'm the big boss, but rather we're all a team and we each have our role, and I respect your role on this team infinitely. Amazing. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. I mean, this is somebody who built the biggest success by including other people in it. And, you know, one of the designations that I've created is that of a heart leader. And a heart leader is a thought leader who leads from the heart, is somebody who puts caring about other people and their success at the center of their business, at the center of their success. And it's so important to me that people who understand this be elevated and be promoted and, and, and be, be celebrated in the world because those are the people that bring the rest of us along with them on the journey to living a great life. Ronald Reagan my favorite president, the 40th president of the United States, said, hey, there's no limit to what you can accomplish if you don't care who gets the credit. And it seems like both your husband and your father live by that credo. I think they did. Uh, you know, both men started out very shy. Uh, both men transcended what, what could have been things that held them back. And I think, I think the study of human nature... Well, I I have too many ideas that I want to tell you all at once. Ah. (laughs) That's good. Both men were students of Dale Carnegie. Mm. Frank Perdue admired Dale Carnegie so much that that he paid for uh, top management to take the Dale Carnegie course. And this all gets back to my father's insight that if you want to get anywhere in life, you have to understand human nature. Yeah, you do. You really do. You really do. Um, I think it's super, super important to do that. And it's very important to be somebody who puts caring about other people at the center of your business. And that's, there's two things I put at the center of my business. Number one is a belief in freedom and free enterprise. And number two is caring about the people that I serve. And those things have done well for me. So it's a great thing. I'm really, really thrilled to hear you give me a private coaching session on the success (laughs) secrets of two of the most successful entrepreneurs in history. So thank you so much. (laughs) That's one of the reasons I do my podcast is how I get free coaching from great people. (laughs) It's incredible. (laughs) Well, all right, then I'll share with you why I'm so just overwhelmingly delighted to have the chance to talk about it. Because I have a personal mission in life, and this is so personal, but here it comes, uh, I figure that my purpose in life is to increase happiness and decrease misery. And it seems Amen. to me that the free enterprise system, at its best, is an engine for creating happiness. It is. Because, because people who work in freedom, serving others, I mean, that is happiness. On the other hand, if you're in a slave state and you're, you're worried that you confide in somebody and they're going to turn you in... I'm going to make a guess that you and maybe many, many in our audience have talked with people who grew up under socialism. 
And uh, is that a fair guess? Or I didn't grow up under socialism, but I no, 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 I, but, I was born no, in in, in Iran under, and I grew up under um, for a period of time under the Islamic uh, totalitarian government in Iran. So I definitely have a very clear understanding of how not to be free. Okay, then then let me ask you a question. Um, and I generally love to ask questions where I know the answer. You know, like a lawyer doesn't ask a question until they know the answer. <laughs> but I don't know the answer for you because I I can't know if Iran is like uh, like the Soviet or or communist states. But was it a situation where having a happy day was a rarity because you you there would be something where you'd be afraid what to say or. Was it like that, or, or well, was I, I was I, I, I was a kid, so for me, I was pretty happy uh, being a kid. But I could see that things around us weren't great. I could see my parents worry. They would tell me constantly, "Don't, don't say what you're thinking about the the new government to the people, because you know what, that could cause trouble for us. We could all go to jail. We could all be shot." And I didn't really get that until we left. But it was it was a real thing, you know. When we were there, uh, when I was 11 years old, uh, someone tossed uh, a lighted Molotov cocktail through our living room window, and a note attached to it that said "Die Christian Scum." And then the the cocktail didn't explode, thank God. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be talking today. But it was it was not uh, it was not uh, shall we say an idyllic existence uh, in that year and a half that we were there. And uh, it was a beautiful thing to uh, be able to come to the free West. And that's why I'm so grateful to live uh, in a society where you get to express yourself, you get to go after whatever you want in life. It's a beautiful thing. But Iran was never a socialist country. But if you wanted to do business, you definitely needed to have uh, sponsors in the, in, in the uh, ruling regime, and you needed to uh, take care of certain people. So there was a, definitely a huge amount of corruption going on. Okay, the, the people that I, who I have in mind, when, which makes me so pro-free enterprise, I'm thinking of one, one of my closest friends is somebody who grew up in Poland under, under communism. And he he left because his father and mother and and he defected when he was 12 years old but he said up until age 12 his parents told him don't ever make any don't ever even make friends with somebody because you might uh you might in an off-guarded moment uh say something that, that would end, would have us end up in the gulag or shot and he said that his contemporaries Oh, there, there was such a culture under socialism of turning in your neighbor that uh, that he said, even as an adult, and I, I think he's in his 70s now, that it's extraordinarily hard for him to trust anybody. And it and it's, you know, he can have superficial friendships, but it's it's really difficult for him to bear his soul to anybody because up until age 12, bearing your soul meant that you, you might get your parents killed. Yeah. Yeah, or I think of a, of, of, of a Russian woman whom I'm extremely fond of. Uh, she also left probably, oh, I'm not sure of the time, maybe 30 years ago. Yeah, 30 is probably a good guess, but maybe it's 20. No, let's go with 30. She said that the constant fear of, of being turned in or in one way or another, that she never had a happy day until she was in freedom. Because every single day there would be something that would 
terrify her, like a neighbor who had looked at her crosswise or something. Uh, and, and she was an artist and, and her art uh, was frowned on by the regime. And so she had to keep it just deeply secret. And she also, uh, she would sell her art, but to, to, in order to be able to sell it, uh, should have to walk like deep into a nearby forest and meet somebody secretly. And uh, she, she wouldn't sell it for money, but she might sell it for a couple of loaves of bread or something. Yeah, but between thwarting her artistic... Oh, by the way, she had a job in the government. I mean, some kind of, I'm not sure, secretarial perhaps, but she had this secret life as an artist. And she said, you know, to come into this country and breathe free was just the most extraordinary... She said, I've been happy ever since. Yeah, that's 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 fantastic. It, it truly is, and that's one of the reasons on this show we we support freedom, free expression, free enterprise so much. It's very important, very very important. Yeah, I mean, I I have a recommendation for anybody who's on the fence about, uh, you know, well about about socialism or communism. Talk with some some people who grew up in it, and you may change your mind. And here's the problem, my problem with with socialism or communism. It's big government on steroids. And in in our country today, with capitalism, you can support dissenting views. Yes. You can like there there can be newspapers that you can buy there. But when you when all the money and all the powers create one great big end and entity, the central party, there's no way for dissenting views because there's no economic superstructure to support uh, dissenting views. Amen. Amen. Super well said. Super well said, Mitzi. So, Mitzi, there is a... um, a cause that's near and dear to your heart. And it's one that I support wholeheartedly as well. Why don't you take a few moments to talk about that right now? It's human trafficking. And if anybody, if anybody listening, uh, I'm talking to you, if you care about human trafficking and you want a way to do something about it, uh, please contact me. And the way to do that is Mitzi. And Mitzi is spelled M-I-T-Z-I. It's like Mitzi Gaynor. Mitzi at winthisfight.org. Or just go to winthisfight.org and and contact me. Uh, We have, how about hundreds of things that individuals can do from just the very simple things that might take you five minutes. Uh, Or some people have come to me who've who've retired and they're almost working full-time on it. And I'll tell you, uh, mark your calendar for May 11th, because May 11th, with the help of the Fulbright Association, they're the scholarship people, and also UBS, the financial institution, and the C-suite, I won't name them all, but there's a whole group of people who are coming together for a virtual hour-long forum unveiling a new way to attack human trafficking. And let me see if I can condense in a minute what, what they're going to learn. Trafficking is a $150 billion a year industry. That means there are immense cash flows sloshing through the system. What if you can use the highest of high-tech knowledge like dark web and artificial intelligence 
to track the bank accounts of the major traffickers. And when you've got $150 billion, there's a lot of vulnerability. Okay. We, we potentially have the way of making human trafficking less profitable. And human trafficking is about the money. The traffickers are in it for the money. And if we can attack the traffickers, we're also along the way, uh, a lot of other criminal revenue, uh, like illegal drugs or illegal arms. Uh, we have a way of attacking it in a way that hasn't been done before. So contact me, please, 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 please contact me. Absolutely. Listener, make sure that you do this. This is an important cause. Uh, you know, um, in the United States, under the previous administration, there was a lot of steps taken to combat human trafficking. In fact, there was, a, I think, a, a special unit within one of the agencies that, that was handling this. Unfortunately, the new administration under Joe Biden has seen fit for some inexplicable crazy reason to disband that, uh, that unit. And... Um, this is something that happens to so many kids around the world. So what Mitzi's doing truly is God's work. Make sure that you you, you contact her. And Mitzi, we'll make sure that we put uh, contact information uh, for you in the show notes. Could you just repeat what the contact information is again? Yes, Mitzi, M-I-T-Z-I at winthisfight.org. Mitzi at winthisfight.org. So we'll make sure that's in the show notes 100%. Thank you so much for sharing that. It's a powerful cause. It's a beautiful cause. I love it. It's, it's great that you're doing this. It's a wonderful thing. So, listener, it's time to ask the great Mitzi Purdue, what are your top three pieces of advice, what we call your top three expert action steps that you recommend my listener take on to take his or her life to the next level? So what do you say? Okay, number one, be someone whom others are justified in trusting. Mm -hmm. uh, number two, study human relations just as hard and fast as you can, because there's always new stuff to, to learn. And number three, I'm, I'm a huge passionate believer, maybe, I mean, close to an addict in self-improvement. And I totally recommend that you devote as Benjamin Franklin did an hour a day to learning stuff. Maybe it's listening to podcasts. We like that. Absolutely. Right. Or reading books or taking courses, uh, become all you can be. And I think the way to do that is study conscious study. Amen. Amen. I think it's very, very important. Those are three very powerful expert action steps. Obviously, I agree with all of them, especially the last one. Uh, I think as human beings, we're here on this planet, put here by our creator to love, to live, to grow, and to contribute. And part of growing is learning. You got to read. You got to listen to podcasts. So make sure you do this. So listener, you might be thinking to yourself, wow, Mitzi's amazing. Uh, I, I'm so grateful for the tips she shared with me. What about me? Can I create for myself a powerful life? Can I live my life as the best version of myself, just as Mitzi has done? The short answer is yes. And here's how you do it. First and foremost, make sure that you're living from your dream and not your fear. Because most human beings in this day and age, in, in the crazy post-pandemic world, are so caught up in their fear that they're not allowing their dreams to take root and they're not living and taking action from their dreams. Don't let that be you. 
Take action from your dreams. And the first action I take from your dreams is take advantage of one of the great resources that I offer you. The first one is go to my website, ecircleacademy.com and go to ecircleacademy.com forward slash TLJ book. That stands for Thought Leader's Journey Book. That's how you can get my latest book for free as a Kindle download. Okay, and it will outline 14 steps that you can take to create your business as a thought leader and turn it into a seven-figure-a-year business. Now, this book is not Get Rich Quick. Nothing I do is Get Rich Quick. It's a thousand-day journey to get there. That's just about three years. But if you take advantage of this offer and you take this book and what it has to teach you into account and apply it, you will get there. Second thing you can take advantage of is go to that same website, ecircleacademy.com, and click on the button that says download free report. Download a 28-page report that gives you six steps that you can take right now immediately to help accelerate you toward that seven-figure-a-year practice. And then the third thing you can take advantage of is an actual webinar masterclass. It's an hour long. You can sit down and take really detailed notes and it will give you five really, really powerful principles on how to create that seven-figure practice. This information alone is enough to get you from where you are to a seven-figure-a-year practice within three years. And if you need more help than that, if you believe in community, you believe in what Mitzi has been sharing with us all day, which is how to really connect with people and and use the power of community, use the power of learning from others, use the law of proximity to propel you forward in life, then click on the button that says book a success call. That's also free. All this is free. And in that success call, you'll get to have a call with myself or a member of my team. And what we will do is we will put together a blueprint for you on how you can get from where you are to where you want to be. And it is going to rock. So please make sure you take advantage of all this. Go to the website, take advantage of all these, and then go to the show notes and make sure that you get in touch with Mitzi and help her in the fight against human trafficking. Mitzi Perdue, it's been a total honor to have you here on the show today. Thank you so much. Well, I loved every second of it. Thank you so much. My pleasure. My pleasure. And that wraps up another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's incredible guest, the one and only Mitzi Perdue, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com or go to iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or anywhere else you listen to this podcast. Go into the show notes. All our information will be there. And to take advantage of all the free resources that I'm offering for you to help you live from your dream and not get stuck in living from your fear, go to ecircleacademy.com. Until next time, goodbye. This episode has been brought to you by ecircleacademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice.